0: Welcome to the Mental Health Crossroads podcast, where we explore the intersection of mental health and disability. This is your
1: host, Jeff Sheen. Recent research out of the University of Utah indicates that youth with autism spectrum disorders are more at risk for suicide, although more research is needed to understand the warning signs and symptomology uh, within this population...
0: Joining us this week on our premiere episode is Dr. Matthew Wapit, who you just heard in the clip. Dr. Wapit is the Executive Director of the Center for Persons with Disabilities at Utah State University, a university center of excellence in developmental disabilities. He is also one of the leaders of the Mental Health and Developmental Disabilities National Training Center, which is a partnership between the University of Kentucky, Utah State University, and the University of Alaska Anchorage. And this project we'll be talking about today is a National Training Center for Mental Health and Developmental Disabilities, and I understand that it's a collaboration with a few other partners in Alaska as well as Kentucky. Can you tell us who those partners
1: are? Well, this project is a collaboration between the University of Kentucky uh, Institute for Human Development, the University of Alaska Anchorage Center for Human Development, and then the Utah State University Center for Persons with Disabilities. Uh, with And we each bring a certain, I think, strength and focus to the table. Um, the, the one thing that this project has that's different, I think, from existing resources is that each of these centers has a focus on rural populations uh, and a need to uh, really get this information out to folks who uh, live in maybe some of the more underserved areas of the country. Um, But we also are collaborating with NAD, which is a national association that focuses on the needs, on the mental health needs of uh, people with intellectual and developmental disabilities. And NAD has been a national leader in training in this area, um, and our hope is to really uh, leverage some of their expertise and their existing training um, and, and really expand upon that and make it more accessible.
0: So Matt, maybe you can give us a little bit of an overview of the scope of that project.
1: The Mental Health and Developmental Disabilities National Training Center is an initiative funded through the Administration on Community Living. Um, It's a three-year grant to really build capacity uh, and awareness around mental health issues among the population of people with intellectual and developmental disabilities. Um, The primary focus is to provide specialized training that increases that capacity of professionals, parents, and people with disabilities, um, and the support staff. who work with them, the direct support staff on the ground, uh, to recognize and effectively address mental health aspects of IDD, which IDD is an acronym I should introduce, Intellectual and Developmental Disabilities. Can you give
0: us an idea of when you refer to individuals with developmental disabilities, and
1: or intellectual disabilities. Yeah. What what are you referring to for those that may not be familiar? So, um, intellectual and developmental disabilities is a broad is a broad category. Uh, some people prefer to lump them together. Some people like to break them out. Intellectual disabilities would be what. Um, we in the past have referred to as mental retardation. Individuals who um, would score with the lower IQ, typically that's uh, IQ of 70 or below, would qualify as having an intellectual impairment or an intellectual disability. A developmental disability is a little bit of a broader category. It's a disability or a, uh, a physical phenomenon. <laughs> it can be an injury uh, that happens prior to the age of 18 that affects the development um, of a person, so it can be something from cerebral palsy, which uh, in many cases is caused by birth trauma, to a traumatic brain injury, um, to an, mm. a, an autism spectrum disorder. Um, so, and those and those are all things that affect right the development. There's and, and it's a very broad category. Uh, Down syndrome would fall into a developmental disability, um, but again, it's usually something that occurs prior to the age of 18 that affects the development, either physical or cognitive of a person
0: okay. so so when you're talking about mental health issues and developmental disabilities and intellectual disabilities, what are some of the most critical training needs in this area this is a training grant mm-hmm. so what are the most critical training needs that you see in this area
1: I think there's there's existing trainings for clinicians but where things are lacking right now. Are around training for direct support staff who work with adults with intellectual and developmental disabilities, parents, um, really supports for parents to recognize and address the needs of their adult children with disabilities. And then there's really not a whole lot um, of training out there f- directly for people with intellectual and developmental disabilities. So, you know, a big part of this project is going to be helping these groups, you know, who are dealing probably on a day-to-day basis, more than clinicians, you know, with these this population about how to sort of recognize and address and support um, the mental health needs of this specific population. Um, you know, the I get, there, there is a portion of this that will help clinicians and other professionals, you know, really recognize and assess and diagnose mental health issues um, in the IDD population. But in general, I think what this grant brings is that that focus on that day-to-day staff, you know, those direct support staff in home and community-based services, the parents, and the people themselves. To find out more about what's available for practitioners and clinicians to screen and identify mental health conditions in populations of people with intellectual and developmental disabilities, visit our website, mhddcenter.org, where we have training and resources page for professionals, families, and for self-advocates. And follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram at mhddcenter.
0: So when you think about the impact you're hoping this project has on individuals with this lived experience, Mm -hmm. on their family members. What really is the impact you're hoping to see at the end of these three years?
1: Uh, Well, so the first impact is really raising awareness, I think, of these issues. Um, There's not a lot of folks who are aware of the extent and nature of mental health needs among the intellectual and developmentally disabled population. Um, there, There's research indicates that this population uh, seems to experience mental health issues at almost twice the rate of the general population. And so really raising awareness of that fact and then uh, increasing um, the tools and the capacity of our service systems to address those mental health needs, I think is the big impact that this grant will hopefully bring. Um it's again. I think there's a, a, a burgeoning awareness among clinicians, but that hasn't really trickled down to the day-to-day folks who are working in the various disability service systems. And that I think is the big, um, the big focus of this project.
0: So you've talked about the direct service workers. Mm-hmm. There is an element, though, in this project for clinicians. Mm-hmm. What is the impact you're hoping to have with clinicians, mental health professionals? that are working in this area or have maybe avoided working in this area because they don't have, they don't perceive that they have the background or skills Mm -hmm. to work with this population.
1: What is the impact this project's hoping to have on
0: that particular group?
1: I think that a big part of it is really helping clinicians recognize how mental health issues manifest in the population of people with intellectual and developmental disabilities uh, and really helping them be more effective and supportive in their diagnostic and treatment options. Um, you know, the majority of mental health assessments and diagnostic protocols are not adapted necessarily for a population of People with intellectual disabilities or more complex developmental disabilities, uh, they're normed on a typically developing population. And so a lot of the traditional tools um, and diagnostic protocols just don't work. And so really helping clinicians identify what are the, um, the signs, the, the warning signs, the, the behaviors, things like that, that would um, indicate a mental health concern with a client with severe you know, intellectual or developmental disabilities is a big part of what this project hopes hopes to accomplish. You know, and ideally, really um, building the skill set among clinicians to to recognize and diagnose and effectively um, treat um, these these mental health issues.
0: So there are some other groups that have um, worked in this area, mm-hmm. which is sometimes referred to as dual diagnosis, as far as having a, a mental health diagnosis along with a developmental disability. Where do you see this project fitting into the the bigger picture it's it is a national training center mm-hmm. how do you what is it going to be adding to the conversation or adding to the resources available to the folks that you are reaching out to um,
1: The resources that are currently available I think are again when you look at what's out there there's a few things for parents there's a few things for some direct support professionals but they're not systematic uh, And they're not uh, they're difficult and hard to find. I would say that there's a growing awareness among clinicians and there are some clinical training programs that are addressing this issue. But really what we're trying to do is um, bring bring this content, make it more accessible, really create a clearinghouse for this information um, to address and to really when people are looking for it, they don't have to go to, you know, dig down into some state department of health to find it or something else you know if they're looking for uh, mental health and developmental disability hopefully we pop up and we're able to connect people with you know a, a lot of existing resources some and in- some new resources that we um that we will be developing and disseminating um and again, sort of being that clearinghouse model. I think the biggest impact, though, going back to what I've said before, is really the, the piece of direct support staff, parents, and people with disabilities. There's just not a lot that's specifically targeted at those populations and really empowering them to understand how to, um, how to manage and in many cases just live with right a mental health di- diagnosis. I understand there's a
0: lot of different parts to this project. There, There's going to be some online training modules. There are going to be some webinars. There's things like this podcast that we're launching, yeah. a blog, other things on the website that we'll be launching. When you think about the, the big picture of this project and all of the things that are involved with it, What are you most excited about? What components are you most
1: excited for other people to have access to? Um, I think there's, well, there's a lot of things to be excited about. Uh, You know, given my personal background, I'm really excited about the opportunity to be uh, providing information for parents and people with disabilities um, around mental health supports. The, The other thing that I think is a real need is... Really developing the leadership capacity of people who are working in the field of intellectual and developmental disabilities. Um, there's, if you look at the research that's being done on, say, mental health and developmental disability policy, there's a tremendous amount. If you go, if you just type in a basic search, mental health and developmental disabilities and policy, and you look in Google Scholar, there's a ton of work being done in Australia, Great Britain, all throughout the EU, but there's very little being done here in the United States. And, you know, although there are a few folks who who are kind of basing their career on this area, um, in terms of leadership, driving a national dialogue, and really making systems change, we don't have um, a good cadre of leaders in that area. And so one of the things that this grant brings is a leadership institute that will be hosted here at Utah State University. Um, It's going to be a week-long intensive training to really build... Uh, systems change leadership capacity among people who are working in the field of intellectual and developmental disabilities and i think that's probably one of the most exciting elements of this grant is the opportunity to um to get a group of people um thinking along the directions of where can we go what needs to be done and how do we systematically um address the needs at both the ground level but then a bigger systems level Um, to meet the needs of this population.
0: So, you mentioned the idea of policy related to this area, mm-hmm. and you also mentioned national conversations and national um, kind of movement forward in this area. I'm curious how you see this project playing into some national conversations that we're having around <laughs> mental health, around uh, suicide prevention, mm-hmm. around reducing stigma around mm-hmm. mental health, and then in light of that, what are the policy, what are the critical policy components you think need more attention?
1: Well, I think that currently right now there's not, there's not a national conversation going on around policy priorities in this area. And I would say that um, the big policy issues really trickle down to more the state and the local level. Um, Every state and locality has a different public health mental health system in most cases they're they're separate they don't work together and so one of the big issues that we see with this population is really coordination of care Um, and uh, in getting these two systems the mental health system and the primary care system to work together Um, you know one of the one of the reasons that this hasn't made been a big policy issue is that number one? You know, we're struggling with just the basic epidemiology of this. Nobody is too clear. There's there's speculation, I think, about uh, the prevalence of mental health and intellectual developmental disabilities, the comorbidity of them, but there's not really good numbers on it because we don't have good diagnostic protocols. Um, there's clearly, you know, when we look at the some of the research that's being done, there's an inability on the part of primary care providers to meet the needs of this population and to diagnose the needs of this population. Um, and then there's, uh, again, going back to the systemic issues, there's, there are two separate systems. The mental health system operates over here. The primary care system operates over here. Mental health practitioners are sort of trained to, to deal with mental health issues. Primary care practitioners are trained to deal with primary care issues. And uh, the two worlds very rarely cross-share information. And for us to effectively meet the needs, people with complex needs, especially intellectual and developmental disabilities, are already seeing multiple specialists. And to really provide holistic care and support for them, uh, these systems, these providers need to be talking together. And yet, simple things like sharing an electronic uh, health record is really difficult between uh, mental health systems and primary care systems. It goes both ways. And so, you know, these are state, local, um, in some cases, uh, federal policy issues around HIPAA and everything else. But these are things that we're starting to recognize um, are barriers to providing um, good holistic care for this population. Um, You know, I think in terms of other uh, more systemic issues, and again, I'm not sure if this is policy really, but we're really lacking... um, good assessment and diagnostic tools. Uh, A few years ago, NAD and uh, the American Psychological Association came out with the DMID, which is really a diagnostic manual for people with intellectual disabilities. It provides a starting point for diagnosing mental health concerns in uh, people with intellectual disabilities, Um, but it's just a starting point. Most assessment and diagnostic tools right now are not um, accessible and don't take into account the complex needs or communication preferences of somebody with a, with a significant disability. Um, and so it's really hard to diagnose these. And so, the, again, that goes probably to higher education and training and, you know, more of these professional certification type issues. But um, really, how do you effectively identify what is a manifestation of a disability, what is a mental health manifestation, because it's going to look different. Um, in in that population. Um, And given kind of building on that, given the lack of adequate diagnostic tools, um, what tends to happen is that people, primary care providers and folks who are kind of working on the front lines, uh, tend to see behaviors as just a manifestation of the disability because there's not a good tool to diagnose whether somebody's feeling anxious or depressed. Necessarily, there's a tendency to medicate medicate away the behaviors, um, which, you know, addresses the, the symptom but not the underlying cause. And so what, one other, I guess, and this is a policy issue at some level, is this issue of polypharmacy in this population. This is a population who is already taking multiple medications because of the disability and who then may need other medications on top of it because of mental health issues and really understanding the interaction of these medications um is, is somewhere where research and and policy need that there needs to be really almost clinical policy around how do you manage this you can imagine somebody with epilepsy who's taking uh anti-seizure med- medication and maybe several other medications to help manage their epilepsy and then taking uh you know potentially an antipsychotic or an antidepressant on top of it and then looking at how all of those medications work in the brain um is a huge research and, and policy issue. What, if anything, do you think is
0: working well in this area?
1: I think people are starting to pay attention to it. So I think that's a bright spot. I mean, I think we're having the conversation now and that people are starting to recognize that this is an issue. Um, and that's the first step to actually doing something about it. We still... Um, but just recognizing the issue is just a starting point, you know, to actually doing... The work that needs to be done the systems are separate the mental health system and the healthcare system still kind of work on a separate but equal type basis and to really and so again recognizing that they need to come together that we need to be providing integrated care um, that we need to be um, communicating across these systems again it's a starting point and I, again i think that we're starting to have those conversations i think there are some model programs out there i think um, you have the University of New Hampshire, whose who's Center for Start Services is doing stuff around clinicians and, and really addressing um, more urgent um, scenarios. You have the Triad program at Vanderbilt University. Um, you have the research, the Rehabilitation Research and Training Center at Ohio State University that's doing research on, on health care and mental health um, in children with disabilities. So, I mean, I think there's a lot of initiatives that are currently underway um, that are helping to advance the field and the conversation. But, you know, in terms of saying somebody has good model practice, I think that's, um, that's difficult to point out. You know, if I was to point out one really good bright spot, um, I think that the, the home clinic that we have here in Utah, the university of Utah medical school, where they're meeting the needs of adults and children who have dual diagnosis, um, and some of the clinicians who are working in that setting are, are are doing good work and are really um, driving some of the conversation in the field forward. But again, I think it's not systemic, in any way, shape, or form. It's little bits and pieces here and there. And um, you know, really, the hope with the center is that we can elevate the conversation, we can highlight the good work that's being done across the country, um, and provide that clearinghouse and that ability to get uh, a more uh, robust um, initiative moving forward in this country one of the one of, one of your questions was around how does it reduce stigma around mental health issues and what this does is it raises the awareness that mental health affects everybody you know mental health issues affect everybody it's not just a typically developing population it's not just women with postpartum depression and everything else if you have Down syndrome you can be anxious or depressed Uh, If you have Prater-Willi, you can also have a schizoaffective disorder. I mean, it's this recognition that mental health issues cut across the population, and we need to be aware of that um, and be mindful of the fact that it probably manifests differently in these these populations. Um, I think the other one is that... um, it needs to be a consideration. You know, when we're looking at behaviors, when we're looking at the needs of people with disabilities, um, I think that, you know, one of the things we need to look at is not just managing the behavior, but looking at the root cause, what's causing that behavior, and could it be a mental health concern? And do we need to get mental health professionals involved? A lot of times, again, just like with medication and medicating away behaviors, we tend to want to manage behavior instead of actually figuring out and, and recognizing that behavior is a form of communication and they're telling us that something deeper is wrong. And I think that's, that's an important thing that this project brings. And I think the last one, you asked about suicide and some of the, the questions about suicide. And this is a place where um, we're just starting to see research. And actually, this is going back to the home clinic. Um, Ann Kirby, who's an occupational therapist there, just this year published the, really the first study in the U.S. looking at suicide prevalence among adolescents with autism spectrum disorders and what they find is that um, you know going back quite a few years she went back like 20 years I think it looks pretty level but again our autism diagnostic ability back 20 years was still evolutionary at best Um, but what they found in the last few years is that there's there's a much higher prevalence of suicide among um, adolescents with autism spectrum disorders and 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 i think what this does is that well and what her research shows is that we the the warning signs and the things that you look for in somebody who is you know who has suicidal ideation who is wanting to who, who is wanting to commit suicide um don't look the same in this population and so really it raises an awareness that we need to um, you know yes this is a population that's at risk yes they uh, experience similar issues and and uh, and that the warning signs and what we need to be looking for in terms of supporting this population are something that um, again we need to spend a little more time understanding Thanks for tuning in for our premiere episode of the Mental Health Crossroads podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. I'm your co-host and producer, Dr. Alex Shewell. Each week, I'll provide additional information beyond the interview, and sometimes I'll host the episode. We'll be back next month with Dr. Elaine Eisenbaum from the University of Kentucky. Watch for updates on our social media channels.
0: Bye.